This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today we bring you part two of my conversation with acclaimed outdoor and conservation journalist, Hal Herring. The best way to move forward is to work together, recognizing, never denying the history, but to recognize that these lands are best if we hold them together. We go deep on the history and significance of public lands. Conflict is, in many ways, it's a feature, not a bug of the system. That's it. And so, Hal, in your exploration of this history, what are some of the best examples of successfully navigating that conflict in such a way that it builds public trust and enhances the uh, strength of the public land system? Well, one of them I can point to, is, is ironically, is at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge that right. the Bundys took over. It's kind of a, a exhibit A of cooperative public-private partnerships to create a more sustainable landscape for all the players. It was really ironic that the, that the Bundys and the militia picked that place, right. you know. And it was one of the. It, I mean, they they have an ignorance here. I, I interviewed them. I talked with them, but. The Malheur is one. The Bitterroot National Forest for all the conflicts. The Lolo National Forest for all the conflicts. It is beautifully done. If you're in Missoula and you go fish Rock Creek, the headwaters of Rock Creek on the on the National Forest are roadless because there wasn't a lot of marketable timber in there. And that system is incredibly healthy. And it can just go on and on and on that way because it is, I mean, it'll burn, but it, it is... It is protected on federal public land that we all have access to, but we can't go and just tear it up. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. Rock Creek is one of my favorite uh, examples of protecting the headwaters and getting a creek that sustains an enormous amount of public use and just keeps delivering year after year. Okay, so something that, Hal, it's, 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 a, it's a question that we could have asked or pulled on this thread at any moment during this conversation, starting when you introduced the concept of public lands with the Romans, you know, seizing yeah. land from a tribal population, you know, a- as a citizen of the West, you live out in Augusta. The concept of public lands is sort of at loggerheads with the tribal history on these lands as well. How are you treating that thread in the history? Any discussion of of the American public lands at, at right now, it, it should have been discussed for decades, were that these lands were originally the home territory of hundreds of different Native American groups. There were, I can't remember how many languages were spoken across the United States when Lewis and Clark left St. Louis to go to Oregon. But the, nobody during the conquest of the United States, the conquest of what became the United States, believed that these lands were unoccupied. Right. Mm-hmm. What I've done in the history is to try to determine how we took these lands from their original owners. And some of it was through trade and some of it was through outright warfare. A lot of it was through simple like people crowding. I, I think of the Shoshone people a lot. They were incredibly diverse group of people. Um, one of the great histories is Chief Washakie, but just the history of Chief Washakie himself who navigated the Shoshone people through through some of the most tumultuous times that any people have ever lived through on earth. So 
these are lands that once belonged to various native, many different Native American tribes. There's no doubt about that. However, it, it is my contention now that as we move forward with the management of these public lands, that we recognize that and that we embrace a larger role for Native Americans and Native American tribes in the, in the management of these lands. There's no doubt about that. The Bears Ears National Monument in Utah was a beautiful example of how five formerly adversarial tribes came together to assist and make a better management plan for public lands that belong to all of us. That's kind of my model. And that's one reason, that, in my opinion, that that monument was, uh, was attacked so soundly. Oh was because it it was kind of a blueprint for the future of these things. And in my opinion, it was a very successful blueprint. And so that was very threatening, you know. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, Justin. I believe that history is always with us. The weight of history is carried around in a toe sack that we carry. But that if we look with a clear eye at the future, that there are threats to these lands that create a situation where most of us regular Americans, including Native Americans, we're kind of all in the same place now. And the best way to move forward is to work together, recognizing, never denying the history, but to recognize that these lands are best if we hold them together rather than being divided and have these lands perhaps taken from us where neither Native Americans nor I or you will be able to use or enjoy them. Let's press on that a little bit, Hal. I've heard you in, in other venues refer to public land and, and kind of your experience in public land as, as, as an important source of your patriotism. So talk about how our public ownership of so many of these resources is, is, is part of what can kind of make you an American. I always think about the United States in as a, as a series. We, we go back to the idea of conflict as a series of incredible contradictions. Mm-hmm. You know, the Declaration of Independence being written while most of the colonies were, uh, most of the states were slave states, right? Right, written by as many slaveholders, yeah. But America's contradictories, can you imagine a situation in which one of the most capitalistic nations in, in world history has held on to 640 million acres in common, a commonwealth. I find that to be just like one of the most interesting things about our history and about our country. We have, these are, these are deep contradictions. And I've described it before as like two turbines turning that create the dynamism that, that is the United States of America, like that, that draws people from all over the world and want to be here. Because these these turbines of contradiction are turning all the time. The, the the balance between individual liberty and the common good, the balance between capitalism and the public lands, and they're never solved. It's like it's like balance. There's no fixed place where it's balanced. So I see this as uniquely American and uniquely positive. And it's something that we that it is it is the basis of my patriotism is land. It's it's the the ability to experience our own land, no matter whether you're rich, poor, whether you just showed up from from Bangladesh or Mexico, whether you are a blue blood scion of some Wall Street family. I mean, it's it's it is there for all of us, and that's just like that's just not true 
in other countries in the United of the world. What responsibility do you think comes with that for the ordinary citizen? Well, to whom much is given, much is expected. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it is to not be exhausted by the conflicts over the asset. It is to take the asset and pass it on to future generations in as good or better shape than you got it. And I'm assuming your listenership is mostly Montana. And like we have, just speaking from my personal view, I raised two children, a son and a daughter on, on public lands my wife and I, I have, I have lived a kind of unimaginably free life, like the essence of liberty, being able to make these huge trips. And, and I am not a well-heeled person. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, have, I have climbed in the Bitterroots. I've skied the Bitterroots. I've hunted and hunted and hunted the Bob Marshall and the Bitterroots and the Little Belts. I just have a, it's a quid pro quo deal for me. I I have to say what I know on this subject because I've gotten so much in my life. Well, that maybe is a good time to transition to another topic of, you know, there, there in many ways is sort of a new form of extraction industry on the rise. And that is the tourism industry. Montana's experiencing a big shift from, you know, mineral and natural resource extraction to a tourism industry. We saw that accelerated by pandemic, hordes of new folks coming into the state and other other states in the West trying to, you know, enjoy and experience public lands in, in the way that, that those of us who have the great fortune of living here do. But with that comes a pressure on the resource. It might come with it an opportunity to bolster support for public lands, but it also might lead to sort of an over- uh, consumption of the resource. Talk about that new tension that we're, it's not necessarily new, but it's sort of playing out with additional pressure. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought when I saw the kind of the rush on public lands during the pandemic, that the silver lining to the cloud would be that we would gain more advocates in the constituency for public lands and, and better management and more engagement and, and to hold off the privatization of public lands movement. I haven't seen that yet, but I still think that's cooking. But, you know, if you go to places in Utah, which are around Moab, there's a great writer, old curmudgeon writer, I would describe him, Jim Stiles. And uh, I really appreciate his work. His, His thesis is that industrial tourism is worse than extraction. Okay. On public lands. And I think his argument is very strong. But... There's going to be extraction on public lands as well as as high levels of recreation and tourism. And we are going to have to learn to navigate that one as well. Mm-hmm. More and conflict. It, more conflict. And I, I think of the Smith River, you know, and it's a per, only, only permitted float in Montana. And it works very well. There's a, a substantial loss of freedom. But the the trade-off is that there's solitude and beautiful campsites and a, and a, still a clean river, you know. The change is the only true constant in humanity. And numbers of people are going up and numbers of people who want to enjoy the backcountry are going up. But, you know, California has been dealing with this for a long time with varying degrees of success. I think, I just believe, I'm an optimist on our ability to navigate I'm not a believer that we will navigate without serious consequences, losses, conflict, occasional missteps, and some successes. 
We'll be back to my conversation with Hal Herring after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. I'm Maureen Dowd of the New York Times, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Hal Herring about public lands. And how does that optimism persist in the current political environment? I mean, we're dealing with a time where, you know, we said this before we started recording, like it's, it's easier to throw money at a problem for our politicians than it is for them to actually work together on policy. You know, our, our government can't seem to get much done at the moment, although this new environmental package notwithstanding, what kind of is the source of that optimism that, that we'll find a way to navigate these conflicts uh, productively? It's uh, it's there's a caveat with it. Um, <laughs> it. It's a guarded optimism. Sure. If if we continue to be ignorant of our history, I, w- I was reading this book this morning called Montana's Wildlife Re- Legacy. It's it's Harold D. Picton and Terry N. Lawner. Brent Lawner is our biologist here in Augusta, and that's his dad. And that book is all about the wildlife restorations and the creation of the the wildlife management areas and game ranges in Mont- in Montana. It took an enormous amount of engagement and effort for people to do these things. Like Ellers Koch crossed, he was the original U.S. Forest Service guy over here. Koch Peak in the Bitterroot is is named for him. He was a Forest Service ranger. And he rode across the Bob Marshall, what became the Bob Marshall Wilderness, without seeing a single shootable animal. In like, I think it was 1912, I may be wrong about the date. If you do that now, you can go elk hunting. You can see, you know, you know, there's the, the game has been restored to some extent. Mm-hmm. Those were huge choices that people made and money that people spent and political engagement that they, they did, that they, they engaged in the political process. I do see that we are not doing that as much today and that people are tending to vote on the basis of very abstract issues of like culture war. Yeah. Yeah, the tribal affiliation, really. Tribal affiliation. And and unfortunately, the tribe that many people affiliate with has, in the, the last time the, the Republicans wrote a platform, I think it was 2016, it called for the privatization of public land. Mm-hmm. So if you're voting for that, you're liable to get it. Yeah. And I'm not going to say that people are fools or, or idiots or anything like that, but a fool and his money are soon parted is a, a truism. So you're not going to be able to keep an asset as valuable as, say, the Bitterroot National Forest or the Flathead National Forest, unless you are deeply engaged in the future. It's very possible that we will vote ourselves out of, of a future where the freedom of the public lands is part of it. I hope not, but it's possible. Given the unlikeliness of the experiment in the first place, it's possible that we could lose it. Yeah, that's a sobering point. Yeah, given the kind of uniqueness of this experiment, it is. It is it, I think it might be more tenuous than people realize. I think it is much more tenuous than people realize. In fact, I, I think it is unlikely. Just like sometimes it reminds me of seeing somebody levitating, you know, at a magician's show. Yeah. And you go like, how does that magician do that? And you go, that seems impossible. And and that sometimes that 
when I take off, say, on a trip into the Bob Marshall, or I meet people who are horse packing across the Bob or whatever, sometimes it's like watching somebody levitate. How can it be 2022 and we still have this freedom to do all this? All 330-something million of us, the population is more than doubled since I was born. And how do you think about that, whether it's 330 million or whatever the number is? Like we all have, theoretically, we all have equal access. However, you know, that access is not in practice necessarily equally distributed, right? Some people, by virtue of whatever choices or good fortune they've had, like yourself, can can probably walk out your back door and get into public land without too much difficulty. Others have to have the resources, the time, the freedom of schedule to make that commitment. You know, a lot of data by one of my colleagues here at the University of Montana, Professor Will Rice in Forestry, shows that the distribution of permits and so forth tends to correlate with income, tends to go more to, you know, white folks who are more educated. You talk about that, how, how access is, is kind of distributed and how, how we might go about making access to public lands spread more equally across our society. Well, I, I can tell you that if we continue to be the only constituency like uh, white Americans of a certain income group, um, then the the future of the public lands is pretty dim. Yeah, the the seeking and cultivation of diversity and and bringing more people to and I don't mean more numbers of you know inundating the national forest in some place. I just mean having the opportunity, sort of equality of opportunity there for people. I just interviewed Rue Map of Outdoor Afro. Okay, and she's connecting African Americans and uh, with with public land opportunities, hunting, fishing, tailgating, parks, whatever. She's a visionary, I can tell you. I felt honored to get that interview because she's she's doing it. She was also lucky as a young person that her father, who's a successful carpenter, had the chance to take them outdoors and teach them how to hunt and fish. Right. And she realized that so many people where she lives in Oakland never had that. And part of her her mission in this life was to connect people with the, something that she saw as an absolute positive. What are some of the key things that are, are working for her? Like, what are the nature of experiences that transform people into proponents of public land? Not telling people that they have to put on a backpack and go uh, mountain sheep hunting on the first trip out in, <laughs> in the Brooks Range. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That they don't necessarily have to suffer, although some people embrace the suffering. Oh yeah, absolutely. She she does herself in the Sierras, but no, she said that the part of the key was to to you set the bar very low to what people already want to do. Yeah, you know, she said I can't really take that many people hunting because hunting has a huge entry. It's it's it has apprenticeships and guns and permits, and she said, but I can take them to a park and walk and show them like the sequoias. Once it, it, it's again, it's about equality of opportunity. It's it's showing people where the door is. Yeah. And in the South, I have a, a friend down there, a, a black hunter conservation guy. And um, he was on about, you know, in the South, the blacks were kind of cut off from the public lands there because during the civil rights movement, it was very dangerous. Mm-hmm. There, were, there was a time from uh, after the Civil War through whenever now, where it could be dangerous to be caught out there without any without your people with you to, to protect you. And so that those connections were broken. 
and they were and which is particularly tragic really because those connections were so strong during say from the after the civil war when subsistence hunting and fishing was such a big part of uh black culture in the south if if you want to shift over to the bipoc kind of world some of the best conservationists and public lands people i know are in the Hispanic communities of, of New Mexico and Southern Arizona. Yeah. And what sets that group apart? It sets them apart because they, they have relatives and family on the Mexican side of the border, a lot of them, and they know what is at stake. They, they know what freedoms are available here to Americans mm. in a way that people like myself take totally for granted. Yeah. Yeah, there's an irony to that, right? Like that the people that might most appreciate the unlikelihood of this public land reality that we're, we're fortunate enough to live with are, are those that might be new to it. That sort of understand That's right. its uniqueness. And, or even generationally, like um, generationally, these, these people have, a, they have a wisdom about it by having something to contrast it with. Yeah. Yeah. That makes good sense. So how we, we covered so many threads in this conversation uh, it, it sort of boggles my mind how how you, how you can go about a, a writing project of such depth. I hate to ask when <laughs> any writer when something will be out, but um, when might folks hope to be able to 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 consume this this great body of work that you're putting together? I need to deliver in the next year. I am right now. I'm doing various uh, profile in different public lands across America, uh-huh. and. I do find that a little more manageable than than the the part that I'm emerging from, which was the history. Well, I mean, folks can find so much of your writing at your website and in Field and Stream and in other prominent outlets. They can also uh, listen to you on Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast. Take a moment to talk about that podcast project. Well, I, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier. Is um, It was a completely organic project that emerged from a campfire in Alice Creek down by Lincoln, Montana where I was in conversation with a, a Forest Service guy, retired, long retired, named Greg Munther, who was in Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And Greg was such an encyclopedia of, of Forest Service history that this one woman was listening to us and she said, I wish that we could have this recorded because I can't imagine that this conversation could be, you know, that you could ever get this again. Right. <laughs> That was true of another one that I had years ago with a, a biologist named James Estes and Michael Soule, and I would give anything if I'd had that podcast. And that's it's it's oh, that opportunity is gone. But so we created with my with backcountry hunters and anglers, and uh, my friend there, Katie McCallop. She kind of drove this. They drove this forward, and I started the podcast. It's been almost five years ago, and I've gotten to to interview people both within that public lands, writers, conservationists, bison ranchers. <laughs> it's, you know, people, people who are experts at, at shooting guns for hunting. It's been a quite a wild ride to tell you the truth. Yeah. Such an opportunity to, to speak with interesting folks. I have to say how that that's a, a feeling I've gotten frequently during this conversation. And I'm grateful for you to spending so much time with us. I just feel like it's so important for our listeners to hear this history, to appreciate this history, 
in the meantime, I mean, not all of us uh, are excited to wait a couple of years for your book, but if, if, if listeners want to learn more about this history and, and get involved in being part of preserving these resources that we can all enjoy, where, where would you direct them? How would you, how would you harness that energy? It's good to read some of this history and, and some of it, it actually my friend Nate Schweber from Missoula mm-hmm. um, has just written a book on Bernard DeVoto. And I, I, I have, I'm just now starting it. Um, and I, I'm not going to be able to have the title here, but it, you can look it up and it's about Bernard and Avis DeVoto and DeVoto's work is key to all of this. A Western conservation reader is a collection Nate's book will put you in the in into the driver's seat for finding the rest of DeVoto's stuff. Douglas Brinkley's Wilderness Warrior has a huge amount of history. I, I think that we need to know the history of what how we got where we are in order to figure out how to move to the next place. I mean, I without tooting my own horn, I think David Byers and my friends made a pretty good movie at Public Trust, the Patagonia movie. It's outstanding. Yeah. I think I think there's a that's a good place that's kind of that's kind of more current threats to to public lands but uh there's some history there as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Hal, best of luck as you forge ahead on this big project. It's been great sharing some time with you and 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 educating listeners on on this important topic. Yeah, best of luck and happy trails. Thank you very much, Justin. I I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott, social media by AJ Williams, and Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.